All right, Psalm 78, uh, if you glanced ahead or read ahead, you notice is a lengthy psalm, 72 verses in total. And what it really is, and we have a couple of different psalms that we'll find are like this, is it's really sort of a rehearsal of the history of the nation of Israel. God, by his spirit, directs the psalmist to record uh, events that really kind of outline the historical experiences of his chosen people, the nation of Israel. And it just sort of reminds us that God is a God that is into history. It's often been said before that history really is his story. And I think that really has a, a great degree of truth to it, no matter what nation it is, any nation where there is some degree of God's involvement, it truly does become his story. And, and we don't want to mess up uh, what God did, and we certainly don't want to repeat bad lessons uh, of things where we've erred in the past as people. We want to grow and learn and so forth. But, uh, you know, as we read Psalms like this, it just reminds me that God is indeed into the importance of us understanding history as people. You know, we have some of these adages that we say that the only lesson that we learn from history is what? What? It, it repeats itself and that if we don't learn the lessons of history, they're going to repeat themselves, right? And, and, and if there's anything that we often learn, whether it's in our personal life or on a national level, so often we see that reality happening. We, we, we see it happen in our own lives, and then we're frustrated. The only lesson I'm learning from history is here I am again, Lord, repeating history in my own life. Here I am doing it again. You know, Paul expressed that frustration in a spiritual sense. Remember in Romans chapter 7, Paul says, the things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I keep on doing, and the things that I do want to do, the frustrating thing is those are the things I, I'm not doing. So even Paul, 30 years into his Christian life, was expressing that frustration with his own flesh that he found himself sort of repetitiously repeating things, behaviors, attitudes, things that he knew that weren't pleasing to the Lord and things that he wished you know, weren't recurring in his life. But uh, that happens from time to time. And, and I think on a personal level as well as on a national level, uh, it's important. You know, If we don't learn the lessons of history, we're often destined to just repeat them. And so God, because of that, wants us to be informed. And look, let me just say in, in a, uh, in a uh, applicational way to that very fact as we jump into this psalm this evening, I, we should really be conscious of the fact that we're living in a time right now where there are very uh, clear efforts, and I use that term seriously, efforts being made to revise our history, to erase our history. Uh, to distort what truly has been the historical experiences of our country because of some very evil and underlying ungodly agendas. Uh, and if you can lie to a next generation or even lie to the previous generation, really what the background of our country is, how it was established, you know, what our Judeo-Christian ethic was, what, you know, just the earliest days of our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. If you can start messing all that up, well, you can really begin to cause a lot of chaos among a society, among a group of people nationally. So, you know, I, I can't encourage you enough. In a time like this, it's good to really know the history of your own country. This is the country we're in. 
It's the country God allowed us to be blessed to be born in and to live in. And so it's, it is good. It's very valuable to some degree to understand even our own background uh, as the United States of America. But again, Psalm 78 is really a historical record of the experiences of the nation of Israel. And we're going to see that the predominant focus of this psalm really is God's kindness, God's grace, God's faithfulness, despite the people of God's unfaithfulness, despite the fact that they rebelled against God, that they continuously erred, that they turned away from God, that God mercifully kept being forgiving and kind and gracious to them again and again and again. So it sort of contrasts the unfaithfulness of man and the faithfulness and kindness of God. And we'll see that uh, all throughout the psalm as we go through. So the psalm begins telling us it's a, a contemplation of Asaph writing it. And it says, give ear, O my people. So pay attention, he says, to my law, to those things that I'm recording, he says, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. In other words, he says, pay attention. This is important. Verse two, he says, I will open my mouth in a parable and utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. So he beckons the people, the writer does, to, to pay attention, to listen. He says, look, don't be in the dark. I don't want you to miss what's being said here. I don't want you to not get the lesson that's trying to be taught. And he uses the analogy of opening his mouth in a parable and uttering sayings, which you know should be understood. If you want to hear, you can understand them. And it's interesting that he uses the terminology of a parable there. And really, that is exactly what a parable is when someone speaks in a parable. A parable is basically a a, a um, story or an illustration laid next to a spiritual truth uh, in order to be able to further grasp that truth. And so Jesus often taught on occasion in parables and parables were a specific way of, of teaching so that those who wanted to hear could put the pieces together and from the natural story or illustration, whether it was about soil or whether it was about a lost coin or whatever the parable was, Jesus would tell a story. And if you genuinely were hungry to listen and to understand and to learn, it would actually open up a spiritual truth to you. you oh, that may, wow. Okay. Now I see that it became a window to see a spiritual truth in a clearer way. It was a story or an illustration laid next to a truth to help you be able to tie the two together and see it even more clearly. By the same token, those who did not want to hear, it would clearly just disclose their ability to see it at all. So Jesus spoke at times in that way to allow people to make the decision whether they genuinely wanted to hear or whether they were disinterested. And so here he's speaking to the people, desiring that they would want to hear and know and wanting them to understand that the next generation coming up behind them, that it was imperative that they would want to hear. And that they would want to know what they could learn from the generation older than them. He says here, know these things, verse 3, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. In other words, the reason why we know these things is because there was a faithful transmission of the older generation to tell the current generation or the upcoming generation. And then he goes on to say, verse 4, so therefore, since that faithfulness was done unto us, since they passed on truth to us and helped us to understand 
our history, as well as our, our experience with God and what that involved. He says, therefore, verse four, we now are going to take our responsibility. We will not hide them from their children, telling notice the generation to come. And then he mentions three things. The praises of the Lord, in other words, telling the generation to come that, that God is worthy to be praised. And that's an important thing as talking about the greatness of God and the goodness of God in such a way that it would prompt the upcoming generation, the children, the, those who are coming up in the next generation, that the Lord is worthy to be praised and that they would be wise to honor God in their life. Telling the generation to come of the Lord's strength, that is, that he's powerful and that he's able to do things for them and in their lives and that we should rely upon his strength and and not live independent of him but rely upon the strength of the lord and that's an important lesson to convey to the next generation don't be self-sufficient don't try and do things on your own don't live self-reliant live god-reliant let god be involved in your life look to him for the strength to do the things that you do in your life and also to tell the generation to come of his wonderful works that he has done, that is to just share. Hey, let me tell you the works that God's done in my life. It's called testimony, right? Let me tell you the things that we've seen God do in our life, the ways that he's worked, the amazing prayers he's answered. And again, here we see this, you know, kind of responsibility put upon the older generation to convey these things about God to the up and coming generation, to tell the generation to come these things about the Lord, that he's worthy to be praised and he should be honored in their life, that to tell them about his strength and his power and to, to, to talk to them about the works that he's done in their life that would encourage them to want to look to God to see God do the same things in their life. And I think it's important for every one of us. You know, we live in this generation now and there is a generation to come that is rising up behind us. And we should recognize that, that this is our responsibility. Not to just put it in neutral and coast our way. Hey, I know enough and I don't have any more energy. I'm just waiting to get out of here and whether I die or get raptured. But instead we'd realize, no, there is a younger generation that is not going to know things that they need to know unless we tell them. And whatever that means in whatever stage of life that you're in, there is a younger generation. Unless you're, I don't see any toddlers in a room this morning. Um, if you're beyond toddler, which we're all beyond toddler in here, there's a younger generation below you. And to tell the generation to come the things that you can about the Lord is your responsibility. It's my responsibility and it's of benefit to them. He says, verse five, for he established a testimony in Jacob. He's talking about what God did and appointed a law in Israel. God gave to his people the word, the law of God, which he commanded, notice our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God. That is that they would begin to develop a relationship with God as well and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and may not be like their fathers, that is repeating the errors of their fathers, stubborn and a rebellious generation, a generation that did not set its heart aright and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So here again, there's this responsibility and clearly, again, not just conveying one generation to the next, 
But he mentions here specifically in verse 6 that the generation to come might know these things that children who would be born may arise and declare them, he says, to their children. So again, now we become here more conscious of the fact that it's not just a generational thing as much as it actually becomes a family-oriented thing. That each generation recognizing to their children, to their grandchildren, to their children's children, that there should be this spiritual heritage and legacy, that's God's heart anyway, that would be passed on from one generation to the next. You know, this nonsense of, oh, let them grow up and figure out their own faith. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. Well, we got to let them make their own decisions. No, we don't. When they're 18, they can make their own decisions, and then they can be legally responsible for their own decisions, the way I look at it. But until that time, our job, the Bible says, is to train them, to teach them, to expose them to the truth, to do everything we can to equip them with knowledge and what's right and best prepare them that when they launch, that they'll fly straight and on target and that they themselves will have, as the psalmist says here, they will themselves have, verse 7, set their hope in God also, that in the same way we have an expectant hope upon God and we rely upon God relationally, that we will have cultivated that in their lives. And again, we see this emphasis in this psalm as well, where, again, the parental figures, the grandparent figures, that this is something that we should intentionally be doing. Quite honestly, it is probably the most important thing in the parenting process, more than trying to prepare them to be successful in careers. If half the parents that make such efforts to educate their kids you know, intellectually and all the money, time, effort, and sacrifices and investment they'll make to get their kids really intellectually sound, and I'm not diminishing the value of education, if they put that much effort into spiritual development, the church would be doing wonders with the younger generation. But sadly, our American culture, you know, we're, we're being conformed to the pattern of this world. And even as Christians, you know, we're more concerned about our kids having the best education and this, that, and that, rather than we really are concerned about, are we cultivating their spiritual lives? Are we raising kids who, when they leave our home, not that they may have lived perfectly, but when they leave our home and they become the next generation, they know God. They genuinely have had an encounter with God and an experience with God. Because look, if that's the case, I don't care if they're a plumber, if they're a farmer, if they're an architect, if they're a, a doctor, a dentist, whatever. They, they will figure that. That's all peripheral stuff. The important thing is that they know the Lord and they serve the Lord and that they avoid even some of the errors perhaps that we've made. Because you notice that's part of what he alludes to here in verse 7, that they may set their hope in God, not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. That is, we've taught them to be obedient to the word of God. We've raised them with a reverence of the authority and truth of God's word. And they live a life where they themselves, now even when they're independent of us, they keep the commandments of God. And when they establish their household as an adult or a married couple or a new family unit, that they live according to the commands of God. They've learned that. They saw the value of it. And they say, hey, as for me and my house, now we're going to serve the Lord just like our parents did. And there's that kind of that incentive to want to do that. He even says, verse eight, that they may not be like their fathers, stubborn and rebellious generation. He's talking about the generation of Israel that rebelled in the wilderness, we'll see. Stubborn and rebellious generation that did not set its heart right and whose spirit was not faithful to God. So again, part of the benefit of wanting to teach our children is you know, we look back on our lives and some of us, we never even met the Lord, right? Maybe till we were 
already an adult ourselves. And so in our earlier years, we squandered away that time and we lived foolishly and our heart wasn't right before God. And and we made a lot of dumb decisions and, you know, incurred a lot of baggage. And if we can spare our children that by saying, look, you don't need to do that. Don't live stubborn and rebellious the way that I did. Live differently, avoid that, and, and, and experience what God wants for you early on. He says that's the other value. We can spare our children a lot of our own stubborn and rebellious decisions, maybe that we made early in our own lives. He says, verse 9, the children of Ephraim. Now, Ephraim was often a title that was used to refer to the northern kingdom of Israel at the time when it was divided. So he's probably here using more of a reference not to the tribe, but sort of a generic reference to the nation of Israel itself when he says the children of Ephraim, the idea is the children of Israel, being armed and carrying bows. They turned back in the day of battle. So he pictures them like those in battle retreating and running away. So this is the imagery here, the poetic imagery, those turning back from the proper pursuit and now in surrender, they're running away in battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. So he pictures it in that way. They're not keeping God's covenant. They refused to walk in his law, forgot his works and his wonders, which he had shown them. So he pictures the nation of Israel at a time where they like retreating from a battle and surrendering. They compromised. And instead of going forward like a, a faithful soldier pursuing what they should, uh, they became cowardly. They became weak and like those in battle retreating, he says, they didn't keep God's covenant as they didn't honor God's promise in the way that they should have. And they refused to walk in his law. But we can really sense the the human will in that statement. They refused to walk in his law. Again, there there was a conscious decision, a refusal. And sadly, that's where some people can become in, in their heart. They know the truth, but knowing the truth and living the truth are two completely different things. And you can know the truth and constantly or consciously refuse to walk it out in just stubborn disobedience and rebellion. He says, verse 12, marvelous things he did in the sight of their fathers, talking about the great works God did. And he did many, certainly for the nation of Israel in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zon. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. He made water stand up like a heap. So again, he refers to there the great miraculous deliverance that God gave Israel out of the land of Egypt when God parted the Red Sea. I mean, you want to talk about God displaying his strength, right? God displaying his power, God doing something to demonstrate his faithfulness to his people. God literally calls them to miraculously pass through the sea. The Bible says on on dry land, they walked through the water standing up on a heap And there's God's power displayed to deliver them out of a situation, to get them out of bondage. And then here, verse 14, he talks about God's preservation. He says, in the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all night with the light of fire. So as they journeyed through the wilderness, remember, it was the pillar of cloud by day and it was the pillar of fire by night. And God gave them clear leading and direction. During the daytime, it was a pillar of cloud which shaded them from the hot, brutal, you know, uh, Mideastern sun beating down upon them out in the desert wilderness. So God shielded them with a cloud by the day to make it easier for them as they were journeying. He took the, the brunt 
of the sun and, and preserve them. And then at night when the temperature would drop and it would get cold, as well as it was harder to see because it was dark, then God led them by a pillar of fire so that they had warmth. And again, God preserving and keeping them in their journey and giving them clarity where they were going. And what a wonderful thing. The Bible says that whenever that cloud would move, the children of Israel would just move and follow the cloud. It was the, it was the physical manifestation representing the presence of the Lord. So when the cloud would move, they would pack up camp and they would move. When the cloud would stay put, they would stay put until the cloud decided to move again. And, and they had this very simple, clear way of just following the Lord's direction. So sometimes the cloud may stay put for a day and then it would move. They have to pack everything up. Man, we just unpacked yesterday. Well, God's on the move again. Pack all up again. They pack all up again. They move, they travel two, three, four days. They put it down. Then it's there for three days. Cloud moves again and pack it all up again. So sometimes it was a long span, a short span. All they had to do was just follow the presence of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that was really kind of a nice, easy way to make sure you weren't messing up. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. The cloud's staying put. Or you think God wants us to move? Nope. Nope. God's not moving. We're not moving. When do we move? When God moves. Until God moves, we don't do anything. We just stay put. Well, I'm tired of being here. Doesn't matter. God's still here. We're staying right here. And, and, and didn't depend, it didn't matter what God was doing, how long the time spans. They just moved when God moved. They stayed put when God stayed put. And again, just so graciously as he was guiding these people through the wilderness. He, verse 15, he speaks of God's provision for them. He says there that God split the rocks in the wilderness excuse me, and gave them drink in abundance like the depths. He also brought out streams out of the rock and caused the waters to run down like rivers. Now, verse 15 and 16, he refers to at least two occasions we know that we have recorded anyway in the Bible when God brought water from the rock, right? The first time that transpired, remember, was back in Exodus chapter 17, whereas they were delivered out of Egypt and they were going through the wilderness and the people started complaining, oh, we're thirsty and we, you know, God brought us out here to just, you know, kill us in this wilderness and God tells Moses to strike the rock and Moses strikes the rock and God brings forth water from the rock to quench the thirst of the people. The second time it happens, we're told in Numbers, later on, Numbers chapter 20, where again, the people were legitimately thirsty and they're complaining and grumbling once again and that was the occasion where Moses kind of made his own personal mistake and misrepresented the Lord. He told Moses, look, I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses, rather than speak to the rock, let his frustration get the better of him as he was exasperated with the people. And he said, well, I need to bring people in. And he struck the rock. Remember, the Bible says, instead of speaking to the rock, God still took care of the people. Water still came forth. God still supplied water for his people. But Moses all of a sudden heard, uh, Moses, can you come to the backside of the house for a minute? We need to have a little conversation about that. And then God ultimately rebuked Moses because he didn't obey the Lord and he acted in his flesh impulsively and he misrepresented the Lord as if God was angry at the people. Were they complaining and grumbling and whining? Yes, but God was not angry with them in that situation. There was a legitimate need and they were whining and complaining. But what Moses did, the bigger issue, remember, was he, he misrepresented not just the Lord, but he also he distorted a type of Christ because Jesus is that rock which had to be struck once 
But once Jesus was struck and broken once for our sins as he died upon the cross to give us living water, the water of his spirit, now all Jesus needs is for us to speak to him, to call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus doesn't need to be repeatedly struck and wounded and harmed again and again. And this is what's wrong, again, with any theological uh, you know, presentation that Christ is continually suffering. Christ suffered once, the Bible says. He was struck once. God was very upset with Moses because he distorted a picture ultimately of what Christ really was going to do. He would be struck once for our sin. And then after that, all we need to do is speak to him. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter seven? He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that water that satisfied their physical thirst was a picture of how Jesus as the rock for us in the midst of our wilderness journeys when it's hot and difficult and our, we're thirsty in this dry and weary land that we can go to Jesus and Jesus can satisfy our thirst in a way like no one else can with that living water of his spirit. He can fulfill us in a time when we are dealing maybe with hard and difficult seasons in our life. And, and here he speaks of the two times in Israel's history when that happened for them. Verse 17, now notice, God has done these things. Again, he's building up this idea from verse 12, particularly down on, God divided the sea for them. God led them by the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. God's breaking open rocks and bringing water for them to drink. So God's showing his power and his presence. He's preserving them. He's providing for them. You would think that they would be so grateful, right? Hey, we are going to love and serve God faithfully. But what's verse 17 say? But that's always bad news. But they sinned even more against him by rebelling against the most high in the wilderness. So though God did all those things in their heart, their free will, they still had a rebellious attitude. They sinned against the Lord even more. They just disregarded God's goodness. They, they, they despised his kindness and his help. They rebelled against the most high and they tested God in their heart by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that the waters gushed out. The idea is, wow, big deal. And the streams overflowed. But can he give us bread also? I mean, breaking a rock oak and giving us water is one thing. But where's the bread, man? Where's the meat out here? I mean, breaking a rock, giving us some water. I mean, yeah, but... Can he really spread a table? We're hungry now. Where's the bread? Where's the meat? And they started grumbling again, right? And we remember the account. They start you know, getting upset and angry and complaining. And you know, poor Moses, he's just trying to lead the people through the wilderness and item after item. They're not happy with this. They're not happy with that. I mean, God's doing miracles left and right. And people just, just nobody's content ever, right? No matter how great the miracle, what God's doing, it's always, well, we don't like this still. We don't like that still. And again, just the fickleness of humanity, rather than being in heart of gratitude, they always find what's still wrong. They always still can manage to find a thing to complain or to grumble about, just like, you know, we often so can. So can God spread a table in the wilderness? Where's the bread? Where's the meat? We're hungry. When's God going to take care of us out here? Verse 21, here's the thing to remember. Verse 21, therefore the Lord heard this. You mean to tell me God hears when we complain? <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> they're complaining, they're grumbling, they're questioning God. Why would God let us be here? And why would God, 
And it says the Lord heard this grumbling, this unappreciative, ungrateful heart attitude. The Lord heard this. And look what verse 21 says. I didn't write this. The Holy Spirit did. God was furious. Wow, that's strong language. Does that really say that? Does your translation say that? Furious. Furious. Again, why? If you think from the perspective of, again, you know, as a, as a good father, right? A good father wants to do its best for his kids. And, you know, you work hard and do the best you can to try and provide the best possible life you can for your family. And, and then one of your kids does kind of that, like, just disrespectful, ungrateful. And, and you tell me as a father that when you're doing everything you can to break your back to do what's good for your kids, and then they're kind of ungrateful and disrespectful, that it's kind of like, are, are you kidding me? Are, are you are you kidding me? You're gonna you're gonna be that ungrateful, that disrespectful, and so here's God, way better father than all of us, right? And he's doing all these nice things, taking care of his people, and yet there's this ungrateful, complaining, grumbling attitude, and so this angered God. Again, often we think, oh, to do that, that really would make God furious, and we we think of all these other sins, right, that will make God so furious. Apparently ungratefulness and constant complaining was really making God furious. It says, so a fire, I mean, look at the language here. A fire was kindled against Jacob and anger came up against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation or his deliverance. Again, why is God furious? Complaining, grumbling, no appreciation. And what's another reason God's fury was aroused? Again, we often wouldn't think this is so big of a sin. They didn't believe in God. Unbelief. Hebrews 3 talks about an evil heart of unbelief, referring back to the nation of Israel. An evil heart of unbelief. To not believe God for who he is and what he can do for us. And instead to just you know complain and be upset. He says, because they didn't believe God and trust his salvation... Verse 23, yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. Now, you would think at this point, God would be shutting the doors. Are you, are you kidding me? The door shut and don't come back. You know, <laughs> but instead, look, how God's still being nice to them. It says he commanded the clouds above. He opened the doors of heaven. I like that image there. Apparently, there's a doorway to heaven. God opened up the door of heaven from that realm to this realm. We need him to open the door of heaven more often today, I believe. Open the doors of heaven and he rained down the manna on them to eat. He gave them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels food. That's an interesting concept to meditate over. What's that really mean? God gave them angels food. The idea is, I think, just divine you know, sustenance. God gave them something that was heavenly and divine for food and nourishment to sustain them. He sent them food to the full. So here he's describing what the Bible refers to in Exodus chapter 16. Where remember, God rained down, the Bible says, bread from heaven. They would go out in the morning, and it was like dew on the ground, and it was there every morning. And it says that it was you know, kind of just like this bread-like substance that came out in the morning, and the people said, what is it? And they said, we don't know. What is it? And they said, well, that's right. What is it? It's, what's called, what is it? It's manna, because that's what manna means. So they called this manna for, and every day they'd get up in the morning. Remember, they have to go out and before the sun, the hot sun would come, they had to go out and they had to collect the manna and it was sufficient to sustain them for the day. 
And they had to go out and get it before the sun came because then the sun would come and it would melt it, which was a reminder, two things. One, you had to get up and go out and get it. You had to do something. God provided it, but you had to do something to get what God was providing. God miraculously provided, but they had to go out and gather it. And you couldn't sleep in till noon or you got none. You had to get out there before the sun came where it would melt it off the ground. So no sluggards were getting fed. You know, a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That was the idea there. But every day, God, in the middle of the wilderness, God would miraculously rain down bread from heaven and put it right there for them to sustain themselves and to eat it. Of course, ultimately, remember, they started complaining about that. Oh, we're tired of man, a man all the time. You know, man in the morning, man in the evening. And then after a while, they, they didn't like the manna anymore. Verse 26, it says, he calls an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp and all around their dwellings, talking about these fowls that would provide bread. Remember, they were complaining earlier, where's the bread? Where's the meat? Well, here comes the meat now. Because remember, after a while, the bread wasn't good enough. They were tired of the bread. We want meat back in Egypt. I mean, man, we, we had some meat back in Egypt. I mean, yeah, we were slaves and miserable, but at least we had some meat once in a while. And so they started complaining, where's the, where's the meat at? God's not providing for us properly. We're tired of this manna. So God began to send these birds into their camp, and they were falling and, and again, making themselves completely accessible and available to them. And look what verse 29 says. So they ate and they were well filled. God satisfied them. God provided for them, gave them what they needed. That was what they were craving for and yearning after. But look at the verses, verse 29. God gave them their own desire. I have that underlined. They were not deprived of their craving. But while it the food was still in their mouths. The wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. God's judgment came attached to them getting their own desire and their own craving. In other words, God gave them what they wanted. The Bible says in another place, God gave them their own desire, but he sent leanness to their souls. God gave them their own desire, but their own desire and fulfilling their own desire literally put them in wrong relationship with God. And this is a very good reminder. Sometimes our desire for what we want for ourselves is not what God wants for us. And sometimes God says, you want that bad enough? That craving, that, that lustful longing for whatever you, okay, if you want that that bad, whether it's this, that, a person, a relationship, you want, I will give you your way. But when I give you your own way, you're going to bring problems and judgment and pain and dissatisfaction upon yourself because that's not what I desire for you. And so again, so important that we come to a place where we don't push God with our desires. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Because sometimes we can crave something, yearn for something, and want something so bad, but, and God ultimately sometimes, he'll give us our own desire. He'll, he'll give us what we want, and he won't deprive us, but he'll allow it to be the very thing that ultimately dissatisfies us and brings problems and pain into our life to make us realize that rather than our desire, we should want what God's desire is for us. He knows way better what's good for us. So be careful. 
You know, your desire may completely be in alignment with God's desire, and the Bible teaches that as well, that, that, uh, that God at times works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And the Bible tells us that God gives us desires in our hearts. The thing that we want to be careful of is, Lord, is this my desire or is this your desire? Wh- whose desire is this? Because sometimes my desire is something that is just a strong craving and we really, really want something so bad. And sometimes if we push and push and push and God says no, but we keep pushing and pushing and pushing, God says, okay, you do have a free will. And if that's how you want to learn, I'll give you what you want. It says that God gave them meat. Remember it says till it was coming out their nostrils. <laughs> and God says, I'll give it to you till you're absolutely miserable. And the misery becomes a thing that's actually the correction in the whole process. So great to remember that lesson and not repeat that even in our own lives. Verse 32 tells us in spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous works. Therefore, their days he consumed in futility. In other words, again, because they still kept sinning against God, they would not believe God to work, but kept kind of trying to, Uh, you know, manipulate things themselves and and, and make things happen in their own way. What does God do? He lets their life be consumed with futility. What's that mean? Emptiness. Vain efforts, doing things, and it just never working out. And I'll tell you, that's one of the ways sometimes God will get people's attention from time to time is, is he'll just let us spin our wheels until we just become so empty. This is so futile. It is not working. And it's that very futility and emptiness that causes a person to begin to awaken where they're really at in the air. He says they sent them on a path where their days were consumed with futility and their years were being lived out in fear. That is, they just were always fearful and anxious of what was going to happen because they realized something's not right in my life. And again, God was doing this to try and always get their attention, though they didn't quite often listen. Verse 34, and when he slew them, they sought him and they returned and sought earnestly for God. Then they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God, their redeemer. Notice, when did they remember? This is a picture of repentance. When did they remember? It says verse 34, when he slew them, then he sought them. Sometimes God literally has to allow there to be the painful consequence to awaken people's attention. Much better if just the simple conviction of the Holy Spirit works in our life and we just turn to the Lord. But consequences are great teachers. And so sometimes God may even need to bring a degree of pain or punishment, just like a parent, you know, spanking their child whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so he says here, when God slew them, when he brought a degree of punishment and pain, then they finally sought him. That's when they re- returned, as they returned back to God and began to seek earnestly for him in their desperation. They remembered that God was their rock, he says, that their foundation was God. And sometimes, you know, that's what happens. People wander from their foundation spiritually. And they have to come back to that reality. Man, my foundation, my rock is God, and I need him as my redeemer now because I've sinned greatly. And all of a sudden, they began to recognize that. Verse 36, sadly, look what it says. Nevertheless, they flattered him, that's God, flattered God with their mouth, that is, they spoke kind things towards God, and they lied to him, that's to God, with their tongue, for their heart was not steadfast with him, 
nor were they faithful in his covenant. Boy, that's a revealing verse. Verse 36 and 37 says that when they turned to God, that there wasn't always sincerity. You see what it says? Verse 36 says sometimes it was just lip service. They flattered God with their tongue, right? That's what flattery is. Flattery is when you say nice things to somebody, you, you, you're complimentary and nice in your words, but usually flattery is with an insincere intention. Flattery is usually with, with an intention of, I'm trying to get one over here, I'm manipulate you, I'm gonna try and get something out of you. And so he says, they were flattering God with their mouths, but he says, verse 36, they were lying to God, lying to God with their tongue for verse 37, their heart was not steadfast with God. In other words, it's what Jesus talked about, right? He quoted from the Old Testament where remember Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Anybody can give lip service to God. We've all done that before, right? Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. I am never going to do this again. You are so great, and I'm so thankful. Thank you, Lord. You are, And we, we flatter God with our mouths, and then our heart hasn't changed, and we turn right back around, and we just keep doing the same thing we're doing. God says, you're lying to me. Don't, don't lie to me. I, I, I see where your heart's at. Don't flatter me with your mouth. God's saying, show me with your heart being changed. Show me heart change. That's what God wants. And God says here, they were doing that. They were actually flattering him, but their heart wasn't steadfast in their faithfulness to his covenant. Verse 38, again, look at the contrast. The, you know, the unfaithfulness of man, but the kindness and goodness of God. Verse 38, but he being full of compassion, still, yeah, because God's not like me and you. But he being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity. Aren't you glad he does that continuously for us? He's full of compassion. We fail constantly, don't we? And yet he's full of compassion. He's so patient and merciful again and again. You know, even in our repetitious failures and rebellion, he's full of compassion. He forgave their iniquity and he did not destroy them. He could have, right? He could have so easily just destroyed them in his wrath. Verse 38, he says, yes, I have this underlined. Many a time he turned his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. Many a time. I could put by that me. <laughs> Many a time. Many a time. That is again and again and again. Many a time. God could have just said, that is it. I mean, I just, that's too many times. But many a time in his compassion, he turned away his wrath. He didn't unleash his anger upon us in our failures. For he remembered, verse 39, that they were but flesh, that is, they were weak and frail human beings, and breath that passes away and does not come again. Verse 40, how often, the Bible says, the nation of Israel, they provoked him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Notice the picturesque language. Provoked him and at the same time grieved him. You know, to provoke somebody is to, to, to instigate them to anger, to provoke them. And he says at the same time, they were grieving God. The idea is causing grief and sorrow because it grieves God's heart when we sin against him. And both happen. We're provoking his anger, but we're also grieving God's heart. The Bible tells us not to grieve the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. That's what our sin does. It, it grieves God's heart. Yes, again, he says, verse 41, and again, they tempted God. They limited the Holy One of Israel. 
They did not remember, verse 42, his power, the day when he redeemed them from the enemy, when he worked his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zone. So again, kind of a sad testament, verse 41, he speaks of the nation of Israel and because of their perpetual unbelief, and this was a predominant sin for Israel, they saw God's power, think about it, the Red Sea, rocks splitting open, manna coming from heaven, quail just falling in their camp, providing, they saw so many miracles, and yet what was one of their biggest problems? Unbelief. Oh, if I could just see some things, man, I would believe all the time. That's what the Bible says. The Bible does not teach that seeing is believing. The Bible actually teaches the opposite. The Bible teaches that believing is when you start to see. It's not seeing things helps you believe because Israel saw all kinds of things. And he says, verse 41, they limited the Holy One of Israel. The idea is their unbelief at times limited the things that God would have done for them. You know, this we see happen in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13. It tells us that Jesus could not do many works miraculously in his own hometown because of the people's unbelief. See, when God, nothing limits God, technically, I understand that. Nothing can, humanity doesn't limit, the creature doesn't limit the creator. But if God's relating to us based upon our willingness to trust him, or our faith and obedience, and God says, okay, in accordance with your faith, be it done unto you. Well, if God's going to relate to me according to my faith, then technically, if I don't believe or exercise faith, I can limit what God would have done. I can actually restrict, you can hinder what God could or would have done. So he says here, sadly, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Again, God would have done much more, the idea is, when he worked his wonders. And then verse 44 down through 55, he describes the miraculous things, the plagues that God was accomplishing as he brought them out. He says, they turned, God turned rivers into blood, their streams they could not drink. He sent swarms of flies which devoured them and the frogs which destroyed them. He's just, again, recording here the different plagues, remember, as God was plaguing the nation of Egypt to bring his people Israel out. He gave their crops to the caterpillar and their labor to the locust, the locust plague. He destroyed their vines with hail, the plague of hail, and the sycamore trees with frost. Gave up their cattle to the hail and their flocks to the fiery lightning. He cast them on the fierceness of his anger and wrath and indignation and trouble by sending the angel of destruction among them. And he made a path for his anger and did not spare their soul from death, but he gave their life over to the plague. So that you know, plague of the firstborn, when the death angel came through the camp and began to put to death all the firstborn of the nation of Egypt, he says, verse 51, he destroyed all the firstborn in Egypt the first of their strength in the tents, verse 52, watch the distinction, but God made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on to safety so that they did not fear, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies, came back upon them when they went through, and he brought them to his holy border, that is to the, to the land of Canaan, this mountain which his right hand had acquired. And then, even in Canaan, he drove out the nations before them and allotted them an inheritance by survey and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. So he describes how God even mercifully made a distinction with the death of the firstborn. 
as that death angel went through the camp, God made a distinction. His own people, he led them out like sheep, like, like, a, like a, a flock being led out. Remember, God told them to put the blood upon their doorposts and their lentils. And if the blood was applied from the lamb, that the death angel of judgment would pass over them and the judgment wouldn't come upon them. So God made a distinction. Again, when God was pouring out his wrath with the death angel, what did God do? God made a distinction between his people and the ungodly. The ungodly experienced the wrath of God, but the people of God who had the blood applied over their lives in faith, God led them out safely and they went forth like sheep. Again, God is able to make distinction in judgment. God is able to preserve his people when something can be destroying the ungodly world. God can put his preservation and safety around his people. That's why we should not live in perpetual fear. Because we can realize God can be plaguing everyone else in the world. And if he so chooses, if we're following him like his flock, he can preserve us and keep us safe when everyone else is being destroyed. And so God encourages us to trust him in that way. Even as Israel, he led them out, brought them through the wilderness and to the border, drove out, he says, verse 55, the nations, all those enemies in the land of Canaan. God drove out their enemies and gave them the inheritance of the land. Verse 56, here's that contrast again. Yet they tested and provoked the most high. They did not keep his commandments. But they turned back and acted unfaithfully just like their fathers. That's a kind of a sad thing there. Again, repeating the sins of their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful or crooked bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their carved images, the idolatry they set up in the land. And when God heard this, verse 59, he was furious. He greatly abhorred Israel. That is the things that they were doing, the idolatry, the, the audacity that they would worship other gods and act like the pagan nations, though God had done so much for them. So that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh and the tent that he placed among men. There's a reference to when the Philistines came in and took over the tabernacle when it was there in Shiloh and, and conquered it. Verse 61, and he delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. Remember, that was the statement. The glory had departed. When the Philistines came in and took the ark away, there was that recognition. Oh my goodness, the glory of the Lord's departed from us. He's departed. He's, his presence, his power, it's been lost. We've forsaken it. We've, we've given it over to the enemy, the idea is, because of our wrongdoing. He gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. And the fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given in marriage. Their priests fell by the sword. Spiritual leaders began to fall by the wayside as the glory of God had departed. What's one of the ways we can tell when God's glory is beginning to depart? There'll be tremendous spiritual unfaithfulness and apostasy. Spiritual leaders will be falling by the wayside. Verse 65, then the Lord awoke as from a sleep like a mighty man who shouts because of wine. So the picture here is like God arousing. And he beat back his enemies and put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, which was, again was a very unique thing because the tribe of Ephraim, remember, was 
a large and a very strong tribe in the north. So here the picture is God does not choose that which is strong. God does not choose that which is the most likely, the strong tribe, the big tribe, but instead he chose the tribe of Judah and Mount Zion there in Jerusalem, which he loved. That would be the place. God chose the unlikely place to set up his his temple and to do his work. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth, which he established forever. And then again, God chooses the unlikely. Remember verse 70, who he chooses? He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young. And he brought them to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So, Again, was David the likely choice, right? First Samuel 16 shows us he was not the likely choice. Remember, Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. He went to Jesse. He said, you know, I've been led here. One of your sons is the next king of Israel. Jesse starts bringing his sons in front of Samuel, brings the oldest, brings the next one, next one, next one. Eventually, God hasn't chosen any of these. Do you have any more sons? Oh, yeah, right. I do have this runt. We leave him out in the field with the sheep. I mean, he just, he's the youngest, weakest, no self-confidence. He just, he's with the sheep all the time. Plays his harp out there. Makes up poems. He's just, he's out there. In fact, half the time, isn't it interesting the Holy Spirit says, took him from the sheepfolds from following the ewes that had young Half the time he wasn't even following, he wasn't even leading the sheep. The sheep were, he was following the sheep around. <laughs> it just goes to show you the complete weakness and insignificance of who David was in his early days. He was just a young teenager, had no experience, but that's who God chose because what did God see? His heart. That's all God saw. God saw his heart's right, and that's called potential. From God's perspective, God sees the heart of a person and that's potential to God because that's why verse 72 concludes speaking of David so he shepherded them according notice to the integrity of his heart what did David had David had integrity David had character David had character so he shepherded them according to the character and integrity of his heart and he guided them by the skillfulness of his hands again what did David supply character what did God do gave David the skill to do what God asked him to do. You give God a right heart. You give God character. That's the part that God expects from us. God does everything else. What he's looking for is that our heart would be right before him and he can do all the rest beyond that point. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father.